Guys, I have, uh, I have bad news. We've been experiencing coffee all wrong. We, we talk about salty, we talk about sour, we talk about bitter, we talk about sweet when we're experiencing our coffee, when we're sharing that flavor experience, but we're missing, we're missing something where we've been wrong all these years. What we're missing is crucial and will help expand our taste vocabulary as well as our appreciation of the craft itself. To help us find that treasure chest, open it up and experience it, we have the fantastic Noah Berger. Hello. So today we're gonna to talk about umami. So you might remember we had Noah recently on this video talking about the history of the mocha pot and the chemics, but today we're gonna to have her tell us a little bit about umami, the lost flavor that has been around, but we don't really talk about much. So let's dive in. Anoa, I'm gonna ask you, tell us, when did umami as a flavor perception kind of become recognized and what's the history behind that? So I think the official date for umami being discovered is 1908. Okay. That's when a Japanese chemist by the name of Kikunai Ikeda really discovered um, this new but very old, in fact, taste called umami. And I think the second important date is the year of 2000. when the receptors for umami on our tongue were being discovered as well. Wow. But okay. even though we've known officially that umami exists since 1908, it took a very, very long time for us to, well, us in the West, to acknowledge it as a legitimate taste. Just right. like, you know, all of the other four tastes, they're sour, there's bitter, there's sweet, there's salty, and umami is exactly the same, mm -hmm. right? It's not different. It's an actual taste, it's characterized by a mouthfeel, mm -hmm. principally, okay. I think. Like this kind of tongue coating sensation, salivation, like a very long finish, and something that makes us want to have more of it. So if you think of what kind of connects Parmesan cheese mm -hmm. and a bolognese sauce and a nice bowl of miso soup, all of these things are umami. We want to have more of them. But I think most people still think about it as this mystical taste that's not really a thing because they don't know how to describe it or they're mm -hmm. not, they think they're not used to it. Yeah. In fact, umami is the first taste that we learn to socially mm -hmm. identify because there is a lot of it in mother's milk. Chronologically speaking, it's the first taste we're exposed to. We want more of it because it's good for us, it's good for our body, it has proteins. Mm -hmm. So if you think about like not the chronology of our birth, but more like human history, mm -hmm. then umami is actually present in foods um, from very, very early on. I think some of the most umami rich foods are present in Italian cuisine, mm -hmm. and that comes from the Roman Empire. Okay. So the Roman Empire uses a lot of fish sauce. Um, it's a fermented fish sauce or condiment called garum. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this sauce is really, really prominent and popular across the Roman Empire mm -hmm. is because it's a really vast empire. They need to transport foods over large distances. Salt can be a little hard to get. You need it from the sea. So they discovered that if they take fish and they take mackerels or sardines, these little fish, and they dry them and they salt them and they ferment them over a very long time in like 
big, big factories, mm-hmm. um, then they can create this amazing, super rich in flavor condiment yeah. that's called garum, and they use it all over uh, the Roman Empire. So when talking about umami, and you're, you have a cup of coffee in front of you, yeah. what are ways that you experience umami in the cup? What is, what is uh, like a, a taste odor, an experience, or something that you can describe that helps you more fully understand the coffee in front of you? So the tricky thing with umami and coffee, and I think you'll talk about this a little bit more in part two, that there isn't actually umami in coffee. So similar to there's not actually like sugar. Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of interesting research on how there's actually no sugar or not much sugar, not enough sugar to be perceived by our threshold. But it's the same with umami as well. There are not enough glutamates. Glutamates mm-hmm. are the substances in the food okay. that create this umami experiences. When there's a food that's rich in glutamates, or specifically like free glutamates, mm-hmm. glutamates that have been released through cooking or fermenting or aging or something like that, those are actually consumed during roasting. So there mm-hmm. isn't much left in the coffee after it's roasted. Yeah. So technically, we're not supposed to be able to sense much umami. Because those receptors aren't actually getting Yeah, because the receptors are not getting enough to pass the threshold of umami, basically. But it doesn't mean that we can't perceive it. It's kind of like how when you have a coffee and you're like, this is the sweetest coffee I've had. Yeah. You're literally not tasting sugar. Yeah. And and I think Fabiana might talk about that a little bit more, but it has to do with aromas and the fact that we perceive flavors as well. Mm -hmm. And flavors have to do with aromas. So if there are aromas in the coffee that uh, make us think of umami, for example, tomatoes. Tomatoes have a lot of umami and cooked tomatoes especially. Which we've all tried a tomato-y Kenya coffee. Right. So Kenyan coffee can be perceived as umami, even if there isn't enough technically in the coffee exactly. for that. It's right? kind of like how there's more citric acidity in Brazilian coffee, as Morton yeah. Munchal have shown at Coffee Mine Academy. There's more in most Brazilian coffees than in most Kenya coffees, more citric acidity. But you put a, a really not lightly washed Kenya coffee in front of anybody mm. and a darker roasted Brazilian coffee and nine times out of 10 or 9.9 times out of 10, people will say there's more citric acidity in the Kenya, even though that's not necessarily true. So there's a way we can perceive a flavors without them necessarily being in enough of a mm-hmm. quantity for our receptors to physically recognize them. Exactly. Right? Through flavor mm-hmm. that is constituted of taste and aroma as well. So it's possible to experience umami, and even though it exists in our coffee, it can exist in our coffee as a perception, it definitely exists in our food, it exists in mother milk, it exists in mushrooms, in fish, in soy sauce, in all these things, in so many different foods, and we still don't know how to describe it because we've been so resistant to accepting it as a legitimate taste, We kind of will throw it under the salty area or something like that. Yeah, like savory, salty, to people it feels very mystical, Yeah, and that has a very interesting history of as well, of why we kind of dismissed umami yeah. as a legitimate flavor. Or Which taste. we may jump into in a little bit. With all these different flavor perceptions, actually through evolution, we these are predilections in order to help sustain life. If you have too much sour, that's kind of your body's way of telling you like this food may be bad. It may or, be spoiled. Or not ripe. Or not ripe or something like that. Don't eat it. Yeah, I mean, our body like hints to us through tastes that mm-hmm. we need or not need these substances for body, right? Yeah. So sweetness, for example, indicates that there are calories in mm-hmm. the food, energy that's good for a body, exactly, like sugar, yeah. you know. Uh, carbs. Yeah, carbs, for example. Um, sour 
it can be a bad signal that something is not ripe yep. or rotten as well, but it can be also a good sign that something has what we need to balance the pH levels in yep. our body. Salty, same thing. The food might have uh, different salts like sodium, potassium, yeah. etc. to balance our bodies. And umami signals that there are proteins because the glutamates that create this umami, there are types of proteins, specifically type of amino acids. Mm-hmm. Our body produces glutamic acids uh, mm-hmm. since we we're born, but we also need and love a lot of it. Umami signals protein and muscle building and, and health in that sense, right? Exactly. And which, as you were saying, it's one of the first things that people come to know through mother's milk. Yeah, because mother's milk has a lot of uh, glutamates and it has also inosinates, which is a type of acid that emphasizes the taste of umami. With salt, we have no problem adding table salt, sodium, whatever to our meals. Oh yeah, we're happy with it. Is there something with umami that we can kind of add to food in order to increase that perceptibility for our own senses. Yeah, there is. So this thing is monosodium glutamate. We call it MSG as well. Whoa, MSG? MSG. Isn't that poisonous? Well, it is not. Or it hasn't proven to be. Interesting. Except for one weird research using mice. From how long ago? From, uh, I think, the research 1960s, but this all goes back to the 1960s, early 1960s. Okay. Very, very interesting, very, very upsetting story, actually. Mm. And the reason why we dislike MSG and treat it as poison Mm -hmm. has to do with why I think people don't know much about umami and don't accept it as a legitimate taste. It has to do also with the fact that, like, for a long time in the West, we kind of leaned on these um, perceptions promoted by Aristotle Mm -hmm. on, like, basic flavors that didn't include umami. It included, like, pungent and harsh and stuff like that. We kind of dismissed the fact that in Japan and China, they've been talking talking about umami officially since the beginning of the 20th century mm-hmm. and something about it before just without giving it a name. Monosodium glutamate is basically an umami kind of salt. Okay. It's not very different than consuming iron from eating meat or consuming iron from taking va- vitamins, mm-hmm. but we still really treat it like it's so bad for you. It's this industrial poison. And there's a very interesting history behind that, actually. Okay. So we said that umami was discovered in 1908 mm-hmm. by Kikunai Ikeda. The next year, 1909, he created a company with a business partner called Ajinomoto in okay. Japan. And they managed to create this substance called MSG, monosodium glutamate, uh, they called it Ajinomoto, and started selling it. Straight away, it became a huge, huge hit in Mm, Japan and all over Asia. Because think about it, there's like this magic powder to put over their food and just impart flavor. They were using acid to extract wheat protein, but Mm. then it became kind of a more natural process as well. Yeah, Yeah, using enzymes and bacteria in an anaerobic environment, stuff that maybe you know from coffee as well, from uh, I think it was like uh, starch from things like corn, Mm -hmm. um, sugar beet and sugar cane. Oh, interesting. So the process is a more or less natural process in the sense that it's not that different than yogurt, for example, and spread across Asia. And in Europe as well, they were using umami powders, only they didn't know it was umami powders, which were the bouillon cubes. Bouillon, yes, which we still use all throughout the U.S. Which we still use everywhere. Mm -hmm. So those bouillon cubes are also kind of umami bombs. So when we think of bouillon, normally people think of just salty, but it's not just salty. It's umami as well. It's heavy umami. It's super umami. And that was great for Europe 
Europeans and Americans at the time, especially when you think that this was the time of like the first world wars, yeah. you know, the beginning of the 20th century. So soldiers were going out to the field. They were eating this very bland food. And those bouillon cubes, those umami bombs, gave so much flavor to flavorless savoriness food. And, yeah. So the soldiers come back home from the war and the industrial food is all like the rage. Yeah. And these umami bombs, like these bouillon cubes, they become super, super popular. Why do people actually start having an issue with them? The 1960s is all about organic food. 1962 is there when uh, Rachel Carson publishes The Silent Spring. Mm -hmm. It starts off like this kind of um, anti... How do you call this when you use it in agriculture against like bugs and stuff? Pesticides. Yeah, anti-pesticide movement and also anti-additives in food. Yeah. So there's already this setting for people not liking maybe adding stuff into their food that feels industrial, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then this big thing happens that really sets people's minds against monosodium glutamate and umami as a consequence as well. In 1968, mm -hmm. uh, an American physician of Chinese origin writes a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine. And in this letter, he writes, I had dinner mm -hmm. at a Chinese restaurant yesterday, um, and I felt bad. You know, I was feeling, uh, I don't know, I was getting a headache, I was mm. feeling numb, whatever. He didn't specifically associate it to monosodium glutamate, but by that time, monosodium glutamate was associated with Chinese restaurants. Mm -hmm. So the 19th century, mm -hmm. a lot of Chinese migrants start coming to the United States, right? And they're being marginalized. They have to live in separate neighborhood. Mm -hmm. 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act passes as well. And they're having a hard time integrating into, you know, regular, normal life. yeah, normal American life. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of violence. And a lot of men particularly choose to go and settle in, like, professions that are considered to be less masculine, you know, notice this, obviously, <laughs> it's, they're not really less masculine. Especially at the time, yeah. yeah. especially at the time, like laundry and restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, also, loopholes in the Exclusion Act laws help Chinese migrants, like, immigrate through entrepreneurship and specifically through opening restaurants. Yeah, there's okay. like a loophole, there's a, you know, judicial precedence, which makes it much, much easier for migrants to come from China to open restaurants and yeah. to bring other people to work with them. So they settle in those restaurants mm -hmm. and those restaurants end up becoming sort of similar. There are associations across the United States mm -hmm. that actually present models for restaurants that the Chinese restaurant owners adopt and they kind of settle in and these restaurants kind of end up looking really and feeling like the same. Yeah. You know how Chinese restaurants today, they're kind of like, they're all similar to each other. And if you've been to China, they're very different than what you'll find in China as well. There's like a model, almost like a McDonald's, mm -hmm. you know? And by the way, there are more Chinese restaurants than McDonald's in the United States. And on the table, instead of table salt, there are MSG or Ajinomoto, mm -hmm. you know, bottles. And that really helps make the taste cohesive, makes like to make the model more cohesive yeah. across different restaurants, give this flavor to the food. So people come to identify Chinese and Chinese restaurants with, with monosodium glutamate. Mm -hmm. So when that physician writes that letter and says, I went to a restaurant and I had a headache and I was feeling numb and I was feeling bad, people deduct that it's because of the monosodium glutamate. Yeah. Because people are against additives and people are going to Chinese restaurants. And then there's a flood of letters to that journal of people saying, oh my God, I went to a Chinese restaurant too. 
and I had MSG, and now yeah. I'm feeling bad. Anecdote after anecdote. Anecdote after anecdote. <laughs> and then the journal publishes an editorial speaking about the Chinese restaurant Syndrome. symptom. And that really sets the stage for MSG becoming poison. Mm -hmm. um, there's a group of researchers, I don't remember the year, that runs an experiment on mice mm -hmm. when they inject monsodium glutamate under the skin of mice and the mice exhibit some symptoms and people really latch onto that and yeah. they say, oh my god, then it is poison. Confirmation and bias confirmation. at its finest. <laughs> and in the years following, there are a lot of researchers that don't show that monosodium glutamate is poison in any yeah. kind of way. In 1990, the FDA actually rules it as being safe for mm -hmm. consumption, and still people insist. To the point, by the way, that baby formulas, they don't have monosodium glutamate or they don't have umami to them like mother's milk do because people are so afraid of it. There are yeah. stickers that are all over food, you know? So in a way, I think it has to do with our, I mean, that's my anthropological explanation. <laughs> it has to do with our fear, I think, of the other yeah. and the exotic. This sounds preposterous to us today, ridiculous, oh, yeah, right? But course. if we think about COVID, for example, we still are experiencing these kind of fears associating people or places or mm -hmm. origins with their food and the contamination or spread of disease. Yep. You think about how everyone talked about, not everyone, but some people talked about how the Chinese eat pangolins, for example. Um, we don't know. I mean, we don't yeah, know yeah. what's true, but these kind of theories linking the other to their food, mm -hmm. we don't know what they're putting in it. Maybe they're putting poison in it. What yeah. are they doing in their kitchens? I think that really, really set people again monosodium glutamate sure. without having actual proof yeah. that it's bad. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a biochemist. Sure. I'm not a doctor. I'm not telling anyone, go and like chug, chug MSG. It. I don't know that it's healthy. I don't know that it's good for you. Generally speaking, I think the consensus is that it's best to consume things from like their origin, right? To get sure. all the nutrients and everything that you need. Of course. But there isn't enough proof to tell us that it's the poison that people have made it to be. And yeah. that's a pity because it also blocks access to understanding this flavor, to experimenting with it and to mm -hmm. expanding our vocabulary as well. So there are a lot of efforts today by people trying to change that, of course. Yeah. Ajinomoto. Um, actually hired uh, an ambassador, someone called the Umami Mama, a Japanese biochemist, mm -hmm. a PhD, that organizes these symposiums and these talks. She's being suspected of, you know, not being objective enough because she works for Ajinomoto. Okay, yeah. fair enough. But still, there are a lot of actors today in science and also chefs as well that are trying to promote this message that Umami is a legitimate taste. Mm -hmm. You should try it. You should expand your vocabulary. You should yeah. know it. We should make new things off it. Like yeah. uh, David Chang is making a lot of different misos from pesto and from truffles that grow on corn in the Andes yeah, yeah, and yeah. hummus and all kinds of stuff like that, chickpeas. And so they're trying to really convey this message that umami is a thing, but also that umami and MSG are not so different. The reason why we think it's bad for us is cultural yeah. and historical. And we should open our minds and look into that. Everyone should do their own research and trust their own judgment sure. on whether they should consume uh, you know, sugar, table salt, yeah, or monosodium glutamate. Umami actually literally in Japanese means umai, mm -hmm. which is taste in two senses, in the more hedonic sense mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. tasty, yummy, but also in the more uh, sensory aspect of like something that tastes that's meaty, that's savory. Mm -hmm. And mi means essence. So umami means the essence of taste. Increases all the other tastes yeah. as well. And ha it has this like nice long lasting 
aspect to it as well. Yeah. They give it to the elderly today. Some elderly people struggle with a salivation and umami mm-hmm. makes you salivate more. It increases your appetite as oh. well. So is there a connection yeah. between that and like phosphoric, uh, the, the sensation of phosphoric acid when you're drinking coffee, you think? Like when the mouthwatering, I yeah. don't know chemically speaking yeah. if, if it's related or comparable, but it does give you this salivation and yeah. increase your appetite That's as well. Yeah. I did not know that. Like Parmesan. Mm. People watching this, homebrewers, baristas, whoever might be watching this, how can they take this knowledge and implement it into their next coffee tasting? So first of all, I think my message to you is open your mind mm-hmm. to different taste experiences. And if we succeeded in that already, great. Now you can pay attention to this new taste for you because you have to link your experience with this taste mm-hmm. to actual words. When we want to yeah. teach yourself like a new experience, a new uh, aroma, we just have to consciously mm-hmm. taste it. So next time you eat miso sauce, seafood, parmesan, uh, green tea, uh, you know, a broth. Just try to focus on the mouthfeel and try to tell apart the saltiness from the umami. You can take like, for example, you can take a few of those side by side. You can take a tomato, uh, a parmesan cheese, um, you can take like a broth, uh, green tea, and you can taste them all next to each other and try to see what's common, what's happening on your tongue, what do you feel, how long lasting it is. And then you can separate because tomato has sweetness Mm -hmm. and it has umami. And uh, soy sauce has saltiness and it has umami. It takes time and it takes practice. We need to build like an olfactory bank of like memories and words, linking them together to be able to identify it and your experience will be much richer. By the way, they're doing a lot of research into new tastes now as we speak. So in the future, we will... Maybe, Maybe speak about starchy, metallic. So be open to learning, you know, new categories. They're not set in stone. Yeah. And, and we when, don't know everything yet. Yeah, and when you learn a new category, it, it absolutely opens up your tasting in general. Yeah. So, you know, when you start in coffee, you're sitting there going, oh, I can't really taste anything but bitter and chocolate. And then as you go on, that same coffee now becomes... 10 tasting notes that you're experiencing. Try some good foods with heavy umami. Try to differentiate between them and kind of grow your perception of that, especially those of us in the West who have very little experience looking for that. Uh, But until next time, thank you, Noah.